All right, so let, let's get it back on track here. This is Chain Analysis Panel. Justin will be the host. These gentlemen will introduce themselves. We're going to have uh, one mic for the panel just so we don't get a lot of feedback and stuff. So you guys could pass that around as Justin asks you questions. All right, we'll give you two mics. All right. All right, everyone, thanks for coming to the chain analysis panel. Thank you for joining us right after your lunch. We're going to get started with quick intros, hopefully get you guys some time back. Uh, my name is Justin Ehrenhofer. I'm the vice president of operations at CakeWallet, and I worked in uh, compliance for two years with a focus on AMO onboardings for sophisticated entities that are doing large OTC trades and for tracing Monero transactions and the like. Uh, let's go down the line. Arctic Mine. Uh, my name is Francisco Cabanas. I go by Arctic Mine. I've been involved with Monero since 2014, member of the core team since 2016, and I've also been involved with the Monero Privacy Workgroup, where we did a lot of compliance work and advocacy uh, to the European Union, to United States, and to um, the other one would have been the. Um, <coughs> Anyway, well, I'll come back to me. Uh, financial Action Tax Force. That was the other one where we made a submission. So um, that's about it. Right. Thanks. Peter. Yep, I'm Peter Todd. I'm uh, involved in uh, Bitcoin stuff. And uh, I do actually own a bit of Monero, which I picked up years ago when the price was much lower. And uh, opened my wallet one day. Years later, I was like, oh, that's a bit more money than I expected. But uh, yeah, uh, and uh, you know, I've been involved in like Bitcoin privacy stuff a bit, but uh, never like delved into the details of, uh, you know, how say like the code level say Monero. You know, I know roughly how it works, but that's about it. Hey everybody, thanks for coming out. My name is Mike Hazard. I'm a federal trial attorney with Toraklin Law. We are uh, representing Roman Sterlingov, who's been wrongfully accused of operating Bitcoin Fog. It's one of the largest uh, Bitcoin mixers. And Chainalysis is uh, the private company that has been conducting a lot of the digital forensics that the U.S. is purportedly using it as evidence against Roman. So we're here uh, to get Roman out of prison and hopefully also to take down Chainalysis. Hi, I'm uh, Toraklant. Uh, I've been defending people accused of computer crime in federal uh, courts for the last decade, and Mike and I are working on Roman's case. Excellent. We have a great panel here today. We'll be able to cover all sorts of topics. I think it, I'm going to skip past all the traditional like compliance questions, if that's okay, get to the meat of the stuff, and let's ask some real good questions here that are actually useful and actionable. So first question on that note, to what extent should blockchain analysis companies be accountable for their risk scoring, and how should this be enforced? Because as things currently stand, all the contracts that blockchain analysis companies sign with either an exchange or the government basically says, hey, we're going to give you this risk score on whatever you're investigating, but we're not responsible for how you use it. Is there any, like, to what extent should we make blockchain analytics companies liable for the scores they report, and how actually could that even be enforced? I'm inclined to just say let traditional like tort law take care of it, like negligence. If you were negligent in your duty uh, in relation to how you were using that score, there's a cause of action. I don't. I, I think sometimes um, in computer law, people try to find new solutions when there's a perfectly good old one, but it, it's not a simple question. I mean, I'm sure if you push hard enough, you could make a claim it was uh, defamation. 
And, you know, in some places that's criminal charge, not in the U.S., but in some countries. Well, I tend to concur with both uh, opinions that I sort of mentioned. I mean, there has to be an accountability associated with it. The thing to keep in mind is these risk scores are developed without any knowledge of the underlying theory, software, etc. So that is typically in many cases not disclosed. And it's not particularly disclosed to those who are impacted by it, i.e. namely the customers. Are you surprised that we haven't yet seen a defamation lawsuit by anyone who has been illfully assigned a higher risk score, let's say, by companies? Is it because consumers just don't know what their score is, or is it perhaps a different reason on top of that? I mean, I, I, I've been on both sides of, uh, you know, de defamation type stuff, and, uh, like, it's, it's just so difficult. And, like, when you think about, you know, what these companies go say, I mean, you know, you, of course, know... You know, it's very vague, like what they're really saying in public or in any way you can get info on. And I'm sure you can give plenty of stuff on. Uh... Yeah, like a lot of it seems to be behind closed doors. You know, people don't necessarily know whether or not their accounts have been flagged. And the methodologies that Chainalysis and other blockchain surveillance firms are using are, you know, they're using heuristics, they're making guesses, and they're doing probability analysis. And it's not always accurate. You know, one of the things that we've come across in Roman's case is, uh, we might take a look at the same identified cluster and on, let's say, breadcrumbs.io, which is a blockchain tracing software, it'll register the cluster to Coinbase. And then you can take a look at a second one, uh, let's say, OXT, and they might register it to Silk Road. So you have the same cluster, and you could just have a Coinbase account, but depending on which blockchain surveillance firm is being applied, you could have a completely different outcome. I agree with all that. <laughs> um, I would point out I came out, I came across some information from Financial Action Task Force where they're actually asked by six different blockchain surveillance companies um, on the percentage of illicit activity in the Bitcoin blockchain, and they're all over the place, which would be consistent with the uh, results that we mentioned here. Uh, the figure that I remember uh, off the top of my head is between 0.4% uh, and 12.4% of the um, outputs in the Bitcoin blockchain. Got it, got it. Um... So as it relates to governments using this software in order to target individuals for crime, um, one example, uh, Chainalysis has a contract with ICE, for example. It's a publicly facing, you know, publicly known contract. We're familiar with the number of millions of dollars they paid for that particular contract. So I'm personally very concerned, and I've written about this, about the risk of assigning risk scores with these systems. Um, and the applicability of them to be uh, used discriminatorily against certain populations. And there's really no accountability in terms of this. So what part of the US government would be potentially responsible for making sure that as enforcement actions are taken, that there is proper verification that these tools are not being used in a discriminatory way? I was thinking about this this morning and I was wondering about maybe the FTC um, because they're marketing a product and I think they may be marketing it deceptively because I don't think it's as accurate um, as people say it is. You know, as I already mentioned, it's a, it's a standardless black box forensic surveillance software. And in Roman's case, we subpoenaed their source code and they're refusing to produce it. And we've got a big battle about that. Like, I think if you could have any of this stuff, it needs to be open source at a minimum. Yeah, so like, who's responsible? Like. You know, let's, let's say you have someone who's using this black box tool to determine who is, uh, you know, 
needs to be further investigated and this black box tool says hey this particular subgroup of individuals you know let's say that someone is a risky customer because they shop at black owned businesses for example like who is supposed to be responsible for that type of accountability to make sure that justice isn't discriminatory now this is the problem is like Tora saying i think it's unclear who or what agency in the u.s government is responsible i think that the the most likely situation to determine how this is going to play out is through is through civil lawsuits for defendants who've been affected by this kind of discriminatory uh conduct against them and it'll play out in the courts and, and i mean i think I'll, I'll answer that from slightly different tack from the tech point of view you know i mean I've been involved in like coin join stuff for ages. I mean, I'm actually a guy who came up with the name coin join when someone wanted a clever name for it. But, you know, from the tech point of view, we go think about all these different ways that we can do all this stuff and we analyze our own solutions, but what kind of can MD set you get and what kind of privacy you have and so on. And it's very funny how, you know, we try so hard to analyze this stuff. And then something like chain analysis turns around and they just have numbers with that's meaningless as yeah, turn around slap a risk score on it and sell it yeah yeah and it, you know and it's it kind of gives us the feeling that you know even if we achieve perfect privacy chain analysis will still exist because they'll just lie about it and i think that gets down to well unfortunately it's something like the ftc is really your only option so i think the real question is why don't we all have our own chain analysis companies that just sell random scores and just charge a few million dollars for it well i mean i was telling them uh, <laughs> last night of a funny story i had when i Happened to be at a Bitcoin conference with a very corporate crowd. I sat down for uh, dinner next to a guy who, uh, like four or five drinks in, eventually uh, admitted to me, yeah, yeah, no, I started my own chain analysis company, and oh, it's just total fraud. You know, We just go and like, sell our services to exchanges who just want to you know, say they're compliant, and we sell our services to police who just want to go target someone. And I, based on his acts, I think he was Russian, so this might have nothing to do with how it works in the U.S., but... Like that, that was very eye-opening. It, you know, based on what he said, complete fraud. I, I doubt Chainalysis is quite that bad, but they're probably pretty close. Just, you know, more gussied up. From what I can see, Chainalysis is that bad. <laughs> you know, Chainalysis, the, the, it's like they're the wizard behind the curtain and we're all just supposed to trust them. They, they don't, they're not showing their work on anything. And I think that's the biggest part of it. Like all of this should be a discussion. You know, if, if somebody gets targeted or this evidence is being used to, um, uh, in a case against somebody, you know, you should be able to bring out the competing blockchain companies that show their work and try to, you know, change the, show what really happened on that other side, you know, because all of it, all of it amounts to a, a certain level of heuristics and there's a certain level of probability analysis. And because different firms reach different conclusions, it means that you have to have that discussion. It should be open when two different firms have different conclusions. So I actually want to build on that real quick. Arctic, I'll get back to you, actually. I want to build on this one real quick. So you're representing a client who is, as you said, been there's been a representation by a company that this person has committed a crime based off their own analysis. So, you know, the, as you mentioned, the Bitcoin's a public blockchain, and so they could, you know, have you considered going to another company or some other private investigator who can act as an expert on blockchain analysis and say, hey, according to this expert and all the records we have on this individual, we feel that this, like, this expert says this is our view of the situation, and you just kind of, at that point, compare expert to expert in court? Like, has that been an approach you've already undertaken? Is that something you need to undertake or you won't for one particular reason? That is an approach that we have been taking. We've okay. been working with multiple different uh, blockchain forensics companies. 
and you know they, they come to different conclusions and i think that, that what's going to play out in the trial is that kind of expert against expert battle where you have chain analysis coming up and then our guys coming up but uh you know if chain analysis isn't showing the work we're not at the trial yet we're trying to knock out all that evidence because we don't think that it should even be able to be introduced against somebody unless you can peer reviewed unless it's reproducible unless there's some kind of you know scientific validity to what they've done I mean, it's sensible to me why when you're charging someone that you just have to explain why you feel it's fraudulent, but. <laughs> yeah, and just to be clear, there's not a single expert we've had in who says chain analysis traces are valid, you know? And it, it, so it's like, they all come in and they're like, this is a shit show. So there's no one else that's independently confirmed their uh, belief. No, no, not, not on the ones that matter because Roman was a user of, of a Bitcoin flock, but he wasn't the administrator of it. So he did transfer stuff from Bitcoin flock to his Kraken account. But again, if he's like this major criminal mastermind, why would he put his you know, illicit proceeds in a KYC Kraken account? But they don't understand that culture. They don't understand that at all. And that's, there's this um, provincialism to the case that's really problematic because they just don't know the area at all. Now, one of the things that we've come across was uh, <clears throat> that the, uh, the reason why Chainalysis has been unable to trace to the real operator and creator of Bitcoin Fog is because the Bitcoin mixer actually worked. You know, and I think that's a really big point to make. You know, Roman's funds can be traced to the Bitcoin Fog cluster as it's been identified as, but it, as, as I've mentioned earlier, you know, other blockchain uh, analytics firms are associating it with say Coinbase or another, another company. It depends what you label the cluster and that labeling is very arbitrary and it's done with a probability analysis that can, ha that can result in different conclusions. So yeah. All right, I'm gonna give it to Arctic Mine here. Um, so feel free to uh, comment on anything that uh, was previously talked about here. But just very briefly, I think it's a question of what assumptions are made um, in the parameters that are inputted, and then you get different results based on different assumptions. I mean, a very simple example, someone withdraws uh, funds from a VASP or an exchange, and they say, say, one hop, two hop, three hops, 10 hops, whatever you hit the problem. And so you define guilt or innocence or taint or whatever you want to call it, depends on how many hops, but it's a totally arbitrary decision to decide the number of hops. So um, I know some companies like Elliptic, for example, have presentations saying we don't use the number of hops. We trace everything the whole way. We assign everything a, a specific percent, you know, uh, uh, origination threshold, perhaps like we trace back until the last cluster. And then that's the, you know, the proportional amount is assigned that way. Um, do you think, uh, do you think that that also has the same types of limitations where you feel it's still arbitrary? But you're still arbitrary assigning a weight depending on how far they're away in order to come to the final conclusion. I mean, certainly the uh, the clusters are still assigned by somebody in, in that case. So there's this basically an arbitrary, uh, an arbitrary assumption of how you're going to weight this. And then you calculate from that. But the initial one is an arbitrary assumption. Peter had a comment, yeah. I'll just point out, I mean, I think a lot of what this comes down to is the fact that even relatively simple blockchain privacy techniques like don't use the same address twice on Bitcoin, you know, which is on one hand terrible advice in that if that's all you do, you know, this stuff's kind of traceable. But on the other hand, from a point of view of how traceable it is, and can you say, yes, this certainly came from here, that's more than enough. I mean, it's, it doesn't take much to make it impossible to be sure, yes, that address is owned by whoever. You know, all you can ever do is just provide linkages because that's all there is. 
You know, we have so many different ways of making transactions happen that when you try to start doing probability, you just end with this endless list of, well, what could have happened at this step? What could have happened at this step? And always the answer is, you know, five different things could have happened. Well, when you do the probability analysis of like something possible times something else possible times something else possible, very quickly it's just mud. And that's, you know, and I think that's part of the lie of chain analysis. The lie is, yeah, yeah, no, we can see through all this. And it's, no, you just fundamentally mathematically can't. And the fact you can't is why you don't get more reputable companies who show their work and show where the data came from and so on. And I should say the show where your data came from thing is very important. I mean, of course, you guys told me a great, great example of this, but fundamentally, like, how do you even know a cluster is a cluster? Well, because somewhere you think that address is associated with that company. If you get that wrong, that analysis is going to be very wrong. And unless you can in court challenge it, well, I mean, how on earth are you supposed to go buy that story that that cluster was that cluster? So do you think that blockchain analysis should not be used at all for any types of investigations? Or do you think that it's reasonable to use these types of tools to try and find initial targets, and then you need to use additional evidence that is more specifically tied to the crime in order to circle back and actually prepare and make a case? I mean, as a privacy sort of person, I really want really good blockchain analysis to exist so that we can test our tools and see if they work. I mean, it's, you know, it's not going to go away. That's just reality. So we want really good stuff to exist so that we can test our own solutions against it and see what, what happens. And obviously, I think this is one of the reasons why companies like Chainalysis really do not want to show their work, because they know it will be used against them immediately to improve privacy tools. Like, that's just the reality of it. And unfortunately, that's just the way the world works. And if they don't like it, tough. But, you know, that is what it is. Now, from a legal perspective, I mean, as a non-lawyer, and certainly in its current form, I think it should be all abolished, and these people should have massive criminal penalties for fraud. But, you know, how realistic is that? Well, <laughs> one of the things that comes about is uh, the nature of the investigation. Like, with Roman's case, it appears that, uh, you know, he was targeted very early on in the investigation. And the entire investigation became, how do we prove that Roman operated Bitcoin Fog instead of being who created Bitcoin Fog? And when the government works with a company like Chainalysis and they give them a target, you know, they're building the case for the government instead of conducting an open investigation to try to find the truth. And I think that's one of the scariest uh, things that Chainalysis has done and has the potential to do. It's, it's terrible. I don't think uh, that any blockchain forensics should be admissible as evidence in federal court because it's a standardless science at this point. It's totally new. It's black box and people are profiteering left and right off of it. And I think when you introduce that profit motive into the question of justice and somebody's guilt or innocence, it distorts justice um, in the name of greed. All right, Commander, do you have something? Yeah, I mean, I think that the there's some very, very limited cases, and I'm gonna give them credit, where it can actually make sense, but you definitely don't start an investigation with this. Um, and you, you could use it in a case where you have a lot of evidence, and it's sort of ideal for it. Like I give you an example, somebody takes uh, 100 Bitcoins and splits them up into 0.01 amounts, spread them all a bunch of mixtures and reassembles it. And you can get some reasonable statistics out of it. You're not making these kind of guesses. Then if you start off with a, legitimate independent corroborating evidence and then you want to do some further that might be the case but pretty well every other situation i would say ban it 
Okay, any other uh, comments on this particular topic before we choose uh, other other more, I guess, blockchain generic I mean, topics and for analysis? I'll just say, like, a good stand for this stuff is if you can't explain it to a jury with a whiteboard going step by step exactly what the hell you're making claim on, it's bullshit. Like, I'm sorry, you know, you are in the current, you know, realm of this so-called science. If you can't sit there and explain step by step where those coins went with that actual transactions, not some silly, you know, bubbles on a graph, you know, what you're doing is, is nonsense and you should not be allowed in court. And I think we mentioned last night about Chris Fabricant's book, Junk Science, uh, The Innocence Project, and how every time a new type of forensics comes along, uh, it, it's subject to false positives, uh, particularly at the beginning, where we are with uh, blockchain forensics. This happened with uh, hair follicle analysis, dental records, DNA, fingerprints. Uh, in each case, the junk science leads to a high proportion of wrongful convictions. And this is the danger uh, when you accept something that isn't a science as a science. And when you are in a courtroom and you have an expert and the expert gets this primacy and the jury's gonna think that the expert is speaking a scientific truth. You know, to get declared as an expert is a big deal. And if Chainalysis gets that uh, credibility through these criminal cases, you know, uh, we're looking at a, a long road down that way. It's not, it's not a positive thing. There's a wallet address in the indictment that I think typifies this whole case and the government's uh, approach to it. And it's in the asset forfeiture section of the indictment where they're saying, here's the assets we're going to seize. And they list as Bitcoin and all this stuff like that. And then at the end, there's this wallet address that they say there's something like 1,200 Bitcoin in. And of course, like you say, it's on the public blockchain. So we go and look it up and there's no Bitcoin in it. And it hasn't done a transaction since 2012. So we point this out to them and they say, oh no, we've got this like mystic, you know, clustering chain analysis reactor thing. And it's part of the Bitcoin fog cluster, which they haven't identified to us. So they copied the wrong address when they put it in. <laughs> okay. <laughs> but they, they can't, they refuse to correct it. Like they say that that's like the reality that there's like all these Bitcoin in this thing that when you look it up factually, it's not there, and you're like arguing with an insane person. <laughs> yeah, that, I, I could definitely see that being very frustrating. Um, Peter, I'm gonna give you a quick question. So uh, there, you're familiar with people's privacy efforts on Bitcoin. You've been very much a proponent of people's uh, ability to engage in private transactions on Bitcoin. So uh, first of all, I, would you agree that people would be able to make Bitcoin transactions privately is the first question. I assume yes, but. Quite, quite easily. And also, I mean, there's two types of privacy you can really talk about. One is that certainly from on-chain data, based on what you can see on-chain, you have a very good K anonymity set. And the term K anonymity set means that there are K different people who could have been the originator of this thing. Um, you know, a simple example is if we all decide to go do a vote in this room and we, you know, take ballots and go drop it into a paper ballot box. Well, any one of the votes, provided we don't do something stupid, like write our name on the ballot, any one of the votes could have come from anyone. So you just count up how many people are in this room and that's your K. And, but then there's another type of privacy, which Bitcoin Lightning does very well, which is that the records just don't exist in a way that anyone can get. You know, if I go send you money on Bitcoin Lightning, a third party not involved in that transaction 
real, it's exceptionally difficult for them to go figure out had that happened at all, especially if they're not using an active technique. Like if they're actively trying to go use the same nodes, there's certain things that can be done that give you some insight. But you know, if you're some dude off in you know Russia right now trying to go and like track you know U.S. politicians and what money they're spending on Bitcoin, it's exceptionally difficult to even know it even happened. And Bitcoin does very well for the latter in certain circumstances. Of course, I also got to point out, PayPal works really well for that too, provided that your adversary yeah. isn't PayPal. So you know, there is that. So expanding out a little bit, to what extent are people's efforts on Bitcoin to use Bitcoin privately and to use these tools, to what extent does that actually improve the fungibility of Bitcoin overall in terms of preventing certain things like these automated risk tools? Well, remember, going back to the term, KNMD set, you have to have other people who are doing a similar thing to you to have privacy. If I'm the only guy in the world using a privacy tool, well, anyone using the privacy tool is probably me. And you know, funny enough, I mean, Tor, you know, famously, who started the Tor project? It was the US government themselves. And why would they do that? Well, because they need privacy tools for you know, many reasons. I mean, one, of course, being that you know, they need ways to go and communicate with their agents, often foreign countries doing nefarious stuff. Well, that doesn't make sense if Tor is only used by US agents. So obviously, they have to make it a public thing that everyone uses, or the whole idea of Tor doesn't make any sense. I mean, there are other users of Bitcoin Frog, though, right, that, that use the mixing service. Not, not saying people who ran it, but you're saying that your client was a user of Bitcoin Frog, for, well, Frog, 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 for example. F-O-G. And, um, yes. And um, uh, there are many other users. So are you saying that in order to help in Bitcoin fungibility, it would make sense for more people who are publicly saying, yeah, I use this Absolutely. tool, for example? Yeah. In, in fact, like th this case here is a great example of KNMD set. At least the KNMD set here is your client and also the guy who actually ran Bitcoin Fog. Because you know, if I was running Bitcoin Fog, obviously I'd go and take my earnings in Bitcoin Fog and run them through the same mixer. I mean, that's just the obvious way to go do it. And for you know, from the tech point of view, I say like obviously anyone who used Bitcoin Fog at all would show up in that KM Nindy set. That's just how it would work. It's the obvious thing to do. Now, would I necessarily recommend that people use that sort of mixer? Well, I mean, there's better solutions than that. Um, you know, CoinJoin is a more principled way to do a lot of this stuff. But the general principle of, yeah, everyone should be using anonymity technology is absolutely true. Does it not worry you, though, that you know, there was someone here who believed they were using the right privacy tool, they were using Bitcoin, they wanted to have, have privacy, they wanted to have fungibility of their assets, and now they're going through this really long investigation have, for having done so, right? Is, is that not really, well, really worrying? I mean, the and, thing and is... might be an argument. I'm not saying not to use Bitcoin privacy tools, but as it relates to Bitcoin fungibility and the fact that we have chain analysis sitting there and pointing to say, hey, we found this user that mixed these funds, so go investigate them and, and create this case. Isn't that, you know, the fact that this person used the privacy tool very hurtful in terms of Bitcoin overall fungibility? Well, I mean, I, I think, you know, what this case comes down to is government going and singling out a person because they have the resources to single out people at random and go do terrible things to them. You know, government is just a scary thing that, you know, occasionally goes and ruins people's lives. But they can't ruin all our lives in this kind of way. They just don't have the resources. So if you know a thousand of us were using Bitcoin Fog, well, that's your one in a thousand chance of being that guy. And in fact, less because you know in this case they probably targeted him because he was Russian, which you know most of us aren't. But 
I mean, the more people who use this stuff, the less likely this is to be a problem. Now, is the risk zero? No, but Christ, guys, have some courage in your lives. Okay, one last question. Then we can move on to another point. Um, so, Peter, what, what's what's your plan then? If, if you know, if, if we wake up tomorrow and everyone is using you know Bitcoin mixing services, then yeah, of course, it's going to be difficult for them to go after like literally everyone that has ever used Bitcoin, right? But if it remains, well, would you agree that currently Bitcoin mixing is a niche? And if it remains on a user base like well, it does now in size, if, if by Bitcoin mixing you mean services like Bitcoin Fog, well, like Fog, if you add up, but let's say, hang on, let's just say, so those services are not used all that much, mm -hmm. and the reason why is that they're just technologically inferior to CoinJoin. No, I mean, even if you added up, well, let's say you added up all Samurai Whirlpool, you added up all Wabi Sabi, you added up Join Market, and hell, let's even say page, all pay joins now, right? I mean, that's a minority of Bitcoin's overall network activity, all combined, right? But it's not a very small minority. Um, so, like, what, right, I, I believe when fees were low, were, you know, were lower, the peak that Wasabi hit was on the order of like, you know, somewhere between like one to five percent of all blockchain space was being used by coin joints, and you know that that's plenty enough. I mean, like, obviously, again, you can't get away from the fact that there are some risks with all this stuff, but it it really doesn't worry that me. I mean, I personally, you know, put put all my coins through CoinJoin, and when I go take those coins, I go put them into Lightning channels, and then I use Lightning's go pay stuff, and that means I have two very very different anonymity technologies at play there. And I just do that routinely because, I mean, why wouldn't you? It's just easy. It doesn't cost very much. I mean, Lightning works really well. Once the money's in there, it's just the obvious way to go do it. You know. Now, if I wanted to do something where I truly wanted to make sure that the source of the coins was unknown, yeah, maybe I'd go layer a few more things on top of that. But you know, just okay. by default, this is pretty good. Okay. And, and I should also point, when I say I want to make things where the source of coins is unknown, frequently I've done this for things I've done publicly. Like if I publicly do something where everyone in the world will know what transaction, that transaction was mine, I'll use anonymity tech so I don't make it traceable back to the rest of my money, right? Anonymity is not just because you want to go hide. It's also because you want to go hide. Well, you know, how much money do you go earn? Like who do you pay rent to? I mean, it's all pretty basic questions. Like nobody publishes their bank account, you know, and all their transactions. Like there's obvious privacy concerns there. Okay, so your overall currently comfortable with the number of Bitcoin privacy tech users? Do you think that it's a large number of users already? It's large. Obviously, it should be 100%, but you know, it's a good start. Do you love coffee and Monero as much as we do? Consider making gratuitous.org your daily cup. Pay with Monero for premium fresh beans, and if you like what you taste, send a digital cash tip directly to the Guatemalan farmers that made it possible. Proceeds help us grow this channel, Gratuitous, and Monero. So, uh, Arctic Mine, I want to give it to you again. Um, so, I want to talk about blockchain anal analysis companies. They have kind of imposed themselves in the compliance space and say, hey, blockchain isn't too scary because people can use us. And as a result, you don't need to have the same risks of cash because, hey, you get to use our tool, which tells you if something's higher risk or lower risk, for example. <laughs> do you generally buy this argument, or do you think that cryptocurrencies should generally have 
regulations, controls, et cetera, that are applied more akin to traditional bearer assets like cash? I think the safest and most prudent way to address compliance in cryptocurrencies to treat it as a bearer asset, cash, gold, et cetera. I also like to point out that not only do we have false positives, we also have false negatives. So this thing works both ways. Yeah, I, I, I really, let's have a conversation about false negatives, right? Because what we're basically saying with the false negative is that a company that is you know, trusted by either an exchange who has anti-money laundering regulations or a, uh, an investigator who is trying to investigate crime is trying to seek out certain types of activities they want to prevent, and they are not preventing it. In fact, this tool might be used as a lower risk indicator that might actually allow these types of activities to be undetected, which may, may have otherwise been detected, should this lower risk indicator not have been present in the analysis. So honestly, it's like, what extent do you feel, and this is an open question to you for, that because of the risk of uh, these false negatives. Do you think that this is a legitimate risk, uh, one? And then two, do you think that uh, blockchain anal analysis companies have actually had a large part at uh, allowing money laundering and other activities to take place because they're at scale incorrectly misattributing things as much lower risk than they should be? Well, one of the things to keep in mind here is that we're assuming that everything is happening on the chain. Now, when you start getting into situations where you're a terrorist or you're a criminal or your um, money launderer is actively trying to manipulate things, and in particular, if they start trading private keys that have been extorted, then you have off-chain, then you have the potential for transferring um, the risk, the, the taint, from a guilty person to an innocent person. So this is the first thing to keep in mind. You, we, we can't assume that the, the person wants to commit a criminal act. They're aware of this stuff, and they can turn around and manipulate it in order to hide their own tracks by diverting guilt to somebody else. And all you have to do is trade the private key that you stole or extorted. Off-chain, even from totally, there's nothing to show what happened. And the scenario that we had and, and, uh, and we presented to the um, European Union, we had a case where uh, this is a scenario where a person paid for a service, in this case a tow service, with Bitcoin. And that tow company was then extorted the Bitcoin. And they didn't say, send us the Bitcoin, give us the private key. And then that private key is sold to another entity who wants to commit a crime, an act of terrorism. And to the blockchain surveillance company, it looks like the initial victim actually ordered the fertilizer to make the bomb. So this is a scenario, but what I'm saying is quite possible to manipulate it in order to hide guilt and put it onto somebody else. So there's a really more hidden risks than yes, you're gonna see from the blockchain. All right, let's... Uh... The three of you, Peter, Mike, and Tor, if you want to answer the question about false uh, negatives. I mean, I'll just quickly point out this, all the stuff with private keys, there are very clever cryptographic ways to go do this without actually transferring around private keys and exposing yourself to the risk that, you know, keys get used and stuff like that. So, you know, if you're, if you're thinking from a tech perspective that that sounds a little far-fetched, far it's not. This is all doable. But 
I mean, I think like the bigger society-wide question is, well, first of all, you know, when you, you know, you mentioned like anti-money laundering over and over again. Well, what is money laundering? The purpose of you know, what money laundering is legally is you are taking illicitly gotten funds and you are finding a way to make that look like it's income from illicit source. You know, this is why actual money laundering operations that actually work do things like they run restaurants. They don't actually have customers, you know, and they pretend that the money that they're earning at the restaurant is from a legit business. Bitcoin is not that good at money laundering because it doesn't give you the, the actual part of money laundering, which is, well, what is the business that you got the money from? You know, like it's, it's kind of, it's sort of like we've transferred this legal definition that's actually quite specific to something much more broad, which is just money where you haven't declared where it came from. And that's ludicrous. I mean, that's not good for society. I think the reason it comes up is because you have, like, for example, proceeds of hacks. Typically, this is on Ethereum, but let's just call it Bitcoin. So you have proceeds of hacks on Bitcoin. Someone ends up with Bitcoin that you know goes specifically to a single address. You know that's the specifically stolen Bitcoin. It'll be marked that addresses the proceeds of these stolen funds, and then they will proceed to put them through some sorts of mixing tools, some you know OTC desks or rogue or some other non-compliant jurisdictions, those sorts of things. So that's the process that regulators are concerned about for I mean, money laundering on the Bitcoin it, side. You know, I, I guess this gets back to my, like, my kind of response to that is, well, your example like Bitcoin hacks. You know, I'm sorry, but the solution here is to go have things that aren't so hideously insecure. I mean, Ethereum's like a gigantic tire fire of ridiculous hacks that should have never happened in the first place. And then when you look at on the other side of stuff, like, you know, terrorism example, I mean, you know, there's been so much talk about how, you know, Bitcoins could help like Russia bypass sanctions and all this. I'm sorry, you know what helps Russia bypass sanctions? U.S. politicians that have ridiculously weak sanctions that don't do basic stuff like say you can't ship military goods to Russia, you know that's being fixed like a year after the Ukraine invasion. They, like, like I just look at this as like some privacy and it's like this is all just a joke. I mean, the sort of crimes that you're trying to go stop are things that we do very effectively in very different ways that don't violate the privacy of everyone and don't create massive bureaucracies. You know, how do we go defeat you know ISIS as an example? It wasn't by going around and violating everyone's financial privacy. It was by sending guys in helicopters filled with guns to go shoot them. And it worked really, really well. I mean, this is why I don't hear about ISIS, because for the most part, they're all dead. We didn't need a bunch of financial stuff to go solve that. We needed the pretty obvious thing of putting men on the ground and getting you know, witness reports saying, well, where are they? Well, they're over there. All right, what do they look like? Well, such and such. All right, let's go shoot them. Like, that works really well, and it's... You know, it's just not a good society trade-off to take away financial privacy. And ironically, with ISIS, of course, why did they get so big? Well, because they go from town to town getting bank records on paper, of course, given where they were, and figure, oh, who should we target next to do a shakedown and get a bit more money? I think when you take a look at uh, the government trying to reach further and further into uh, this money laundering thing and uh, expanding their jurisdiction, like we have the venue issue in Roman's case, uh, they use real hot button issues to do this. They use issues like terrorism or child pornography or things that you know are publicly terrible that people are going to think uh, have terrible dis disrepute, and they use these unpopular uh, actions to really expand their own power. Because oh, who wouldn't want to get child pornographers? Who wouldn't want to get terrorists? You know, and then you have innocent people who get caught up in the expanded uh, powers of the government, like Roman. 
for me, one of the problems in answering the question about false negatives is the metrics, because there are no real metrics here. It's one of the first things I noticed when I started trying to read up on this is that there's not a single fucking peer reviewed paper on this shit. There's no objective standards. There's no, and there's no governing body at all. So I think the problem of false negatives is really real. And it's a super important one, but we have no data even to be able to answer the question. And the, the fact that they refuse to show it, you know, the natural suspicion is, well, you're hiding it because it's going to show something really, really bad for you. It's also hard to test. Like, you, you, like okay, we, we decided that this address is low risk. How do we verify that, right? Right. And, you, <laughs> and that's the problem in this, in, in Roman's case, it's not a single piece of empirical verification. It's all desktop analysis using Chainalysis Reactor, elliptic and this shit that just, you know, it's heuristic and probabilistic and it's not deterministic at all. And then they won't even show you what their standards are for generating the probabilistic outcomes. You know, it's a shit show, it's a clusterfuck. All right, um, I think I'll open up to questions from the audience here. You'll just have to hold your hand up and shout them out and then I'll repeat them to the panel so that we can get it on recording. Yes, please. I'm kind of new at this, but um, it would seem to me that the false discovery rate is going to be a function of the number of coin joins that have, uh, a, a Bitcoin has undergone, and the number that it's undergone is an unknown. Uh, so you're taking a median or something like that. And then after the fact, some of those Bitcoins are going to be de-anonymized because they go back into a KYC exchange or something. But for my simple way of thinking of it, the false discovery rate would be definitely under 5%. Or, or, you know, I'm sorry, uh, I'm sorry, over 95%. Uh, got that wrong. Um, and uh, it, it, it just seems to me that um, from the public, the public, there must be some open source methods where people are trying to do this in, a, in an open way, things like chain analysis, so that things can be, uh, some of these assumptions can be uh, tested either through simulations like you're saying you don't really ever know if it's a false positive or negative and i'm wondering what the public uh, open source projects have said on this if anything well i mean i'll give a very very simple example which is you know and i've, I've nearly tested this directly myself i don't think i've actually made positives in my practice how much money but if i did like let's suppose i'm depositing you know five thousand dollars which will pay my rent and you know living expenses whatever it'd be like say a month's salary or something like that right so I have a legit source for that. I do one single round of Wasabi coin join, which will probably be a coin join with like, roughly speaking, a million dollars coming in. My KN we set right there is, you know, roughly speaking, there's a technical reason why it fits more than a million, but roughly speaking, say 100,000 divided by like that 5,000, right? Well, I mean, right there, I, there's like one criminal in that you know, the probability of those coins coming from that criminal source is already well under 50%. So, you know, that one step was enough to basically make this pretty much nonsense. And in practice, of course, what I do is for that exact scenario, well, I go take my my original funds, they get dumped on the side, they get coined away, they wind up on a lightning channel. And if with lightning, of course, well, there really isn't any indication of where the money came from. You know, I can easily do a thousand dollar deposit to cracking the plate. It's not hard, and there just isn't that information, and that that's just how this is. 
I think one of the biggest things that we've accomplished in Roman's case so far is that uh, we had a hearing to release the seized funds a couple of months, a couple of weeks ago. A couple of months ago now, yeah. And uh, at that hearing, it was the first time that an Article Three judge in the United States came out and specifically said that mixing in and of itself, but nothing else, is legal in the United States. Until that point, mixing operated as kind of like legal gray zone. It wasn't, it wasn't clear if the government thought mixing would be legal, if they were going to punish it. But this is the first time the judge has clearly stated that mixing is legal. So that, that, I think that's a huge thing for privacy guards. But one potential risk, though, Peter, is like, uh, you know, exchanges don't need to service every customer who is not necessarily committing illegal crimes. Like we see banks, for example, that just won't touch cryptocurrency businesses that are legal. So um, I know one concern among many Monero community members is like, sure, you could uh, you could use CoinJoin and you can send money to Kraken and you might not go to jail because, you know, you're not you didn't actually commit anything illegal, but you still get your account closed. To be clear, I mean, the way Monero works, te technically speaking, is basically coin joins for every transaction. So, you know, the way that, you know, in my scenario, in, an area, in, the, in the Monero scenario, it's a very similar type of K&Indy set. So I don't really think that Bitcoin or Monero, there's any difference here. I mean, I think what you're really saying more in general is that, yeah, yeah, cryptocurrencies are potentially risky for this reason. And my answer is, well, yeah, obviously there is a risk there. And how do we reduce that risk? Well. A lot of ways, one of them is going to governments and getting better, saner laws. The other way is winning cases and getting better, saner precedents. All right, any other questions from the audience? Anything, guys? We have one on the left. Nope. You're going to have to come up. Yeah, yeah. I have a question. This is really for the lawyers. Um, what is it that stops someone who's wronged by chain analysis from suing them. You can bet that if we get an acquittal, we're going to sue the shit out of them. Um, oh, good, I, good. I, you know, right now we have to do the trial and hopefully get an acquittal. We have to win, you know, but um, you could sue them probably for defamation, but in the criminal context, um, you kind of got to go through your trial before you can file your civil suit, basically. Makes sense. Yeah. Well, then if, if, the, if you get acquittal and you sue them, that would tie back into the profit motive you were mentioning earlier. It would start taking that away. If yeah. They were, if they were called I, into account and also, you know, they, they need to be subject to disclosing then potentially the algorithms they used, right? Wouldn't that force that too? That's a big fight right now, whether or not you have to disclose the, the source code. Of course, we take the position that you have to because, I, I, you know, they say we don't have to uh, produce it because it's proprietary. And we say, well, you know, you voluntarily went into this law enforcement business and you're trying to put somebody away for 50 to life and you're not showing us your math and all your forensics is a fucking mess. Um, so, you know, I, like the, 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 our focus right now is just to get Roman out of jail and keep him out of jail. And then if that happens, then we're going after chain analysis because I want to destroy that company for what they've done to that now. Yeah. Uh, I got, what's that? I got a question for Peter Todd. And for one, I think what we can definitely all agree on is something other than government regulated currencies is the way to go. So 
when people ask myself anyway, how do you feel about Bitcoin, Monero, whatever, I always try to warmly respond to whatever the cryptocurrency that doesn't have any elements of scam coins is out there. But that said, uh, do you see a value proposition in such a thing as you were describing about just having everything pre-mixed, eliminating the, uh, is using the very technology that is, I mean, it's kind of found that balance between uh, low, low computer horsepower plus everything is already mixed. I mean, how do you feel about that as a value proposition? I mean, I, I think like what the value proposition Monero, and I think this translates directly in how you see, you know, so-called dark net markets type stuff using it, is that it's very difficult to use Monero in, well, I mean, not may not vary to, but it's more difficult to use Monero in a way that doesn't give you privacy than is Bitcoin. There's plenty of ways to use Bitcoin that have very low privacy. You know, there's plenty of wallets out there that just suck and you'll probably get de-anonymized. And on the other hand, there's plenty of wallets that are very, very good on Bitcoin and probably comparable to Monero, if not better. Um, Off-chain, of course, Lightning has its own kind of set of security trade-offs that in many instances are far better than what Monero could ever achieve. But in many, in, in some respects are also less. It depends on what your exact threat model is. But, you know, my advice to Monero community is very simple. Figure out a way to go add Lightning to Monero because like it or not, scale matters. And the privacy advantage of the records never ending up on chain is really, really good. You know, now one of the problems Monero has is in the scenario where, for instance, the government might know, or some investigator might know, you know, coins ended up here at this destination, and I know this guy has some coins here. Well, it turns out that between here and here, there's like three rings which only have, say, you know, 50 people or something in them. That's still a much more probable connection than like the entire set of all coins. And in that type of analysis, Monero doesn't do very well because you get these kinds of connections that you can run a probability analysis on. Now, will chain analysis do this? Well, probably not the way I said because they're kind of scammy. But certainly someone could go do this and argue this case and say, hey, we probably got the right guy because you know, this is much higher probability than coins picked at random. Now, you say the exact same thing with Lightning, and it's, well, how did you even get the data in the first place? Like, unless you're doing quite invasive active attacks by running Lightning nodes and, you know, um, going and probing channels and other stuff, which is expensive to do, it's technically tough to do, and you can't, and you have to be doing it at the time, the data just won't be there. And all you'll see is, well, I know, Lightning ended up there somehow. God knows where the hell it came from. So, yeah, add Lightning. It'd do you some good. My question, uh, I might have missed that at the beginning, but what are the charges? What's the case being brought against? So Roman has been accused of uh, creating and operating Bitcoin fog, and the actual charges against him are, are money laundering, uh, money transmission without a business, uh, conspiracy to money launder with unnamed and unidentified conspirators. Uh, and um, there's also a DC municipal code statute for uh, transmitting money without a license which uh, was attached, I think, uh, trying to get the case in D.C. with Venue, uh, one of the reasons the government's trying to... The government's really trying to put this case on in D.C., and there's nothing that happened in D.C. The only thing that happened there was a, an IRS agent uh, logged on to Bitcoin Fog, 
sent a message to the uh, Bitcoin Fog portal on the Tor network saying, I just laundered some Molly or, or sold some Molly. Uh, is Bitcoin Fog a safe way to launder my drug profits? Uh, you know, he got no response from Bitcoin Fog. Then he goes and he takes some money from an IRS crypto wallet and he sends it through Bitcoin Fog back to an IRS crypto wallet, all while sitting in DC. And that's the justification for hailing in a Swedish citizen to court in DC and locking him up in Virginia for two years prior, prior to trial. So they're manufacturing jurisdiction in DC, which is extremely scary. And it looks like the government is trying to create and extend their jurisdictional powers over the internet all over the world to global jurisdiction, which should make everybody in this room afraid. Anybody who has a website, anybody who you know sells things online, uses online for their business, if the government interacts with it with, from DC, they're saying that they can put you on trial in DC. We disagree with that. You know, and we don't think that's the law, and we're challenging that. And uh, you know, we'll keep you updated on how that plays out. All right, we are at time, so I'm going to make sure we stay as on schedule as possible from here. Thank you so much, uh, Francisco, Peter, Mike, and Tor. It was really a pleasure having you all on here. Thanks, everyone, for watching, and uh, we'll be around if you have other questions.